So this morning, I'm going to go a little bit different direction than, than announced in terms of its, it, my topic that I've chosen is not so much how to pray for our missionaries as it is how to partner with our missionaries. And I say our because we're, we're in this together. I'm a member of a local church as well, and it, it's actually my joy to still be a member of the church that I pastored for nine years. They sent us out as a couple, commissioned us. Uh, for the ministry of, of Baptist Mid-Missions, and we're very thankful for that. Actually, some of you talked to me after the service on Sunday morning and said, you didn't tell the rest of the story of leaving the church in the middle of a building program and a capital campaign. Did that end well? And the answer is yes, it did. It, it did end well. Almost all the capital campaign money was already in. All the plans were done. Uh, the builders were lined up. All those types of things were ready to roll so that even though I, I did step away from the pastorate there, uh, the church continued forward, and we, we dedicated that building um, about nine months after, after uh, I had stepped away from, from that. So I guess it was a little bit longer than that. But, so that's the rest of the story on, on that. But this morning, I, wanna, I want to focus in on this idea of, of missions and local church partnership. And maybe I'm not, no, I'm not turned on. There we go. Missions and local church partnership. And we're going to look at two different passages of Scripture that I think describe that in, in very important ways. But I want to start by mentioning our core values. Um, Baptist Mid-Missions has selected eight core values. Uh, core values are kind of the, the, the plumb line. I mean, there are other documents like our doctrinal statement, obviously, that is eminently important that this is, this is what we believe. Our mission statement, I shared that Sunday morning, that's so important. Uh, even the twofold statement made by our founders, the, those are so important. But another important document is, is this document that contains our, our core values. And they're plumb lines that, that, that we ought to, on a regular basis, ask ourselves, are we really practicing <laughs> those things? Is that how we are functioning as, a, as an organization, as a mission family? And so the eight, the eight core values are the authority of the Bible, global outreach, passion for God, integrity, the centrality of the local church, interdependence, faith, and prayer. And today I want to really kind of focus on two of those because I think two of them, they really intersect uh, with one another in terms of the topic that we'll be addressing, missions of the local church. And so the, the one about the authority of Scripture simply reads this way. The, the core value about the authority of Scripture reads, ministry is directed by the inspired and errant word of God. And so what drives what we do at Baptist Mid-Missions, and I say at Baptist Mid-Missions, you realize there's no real, it's not like there's one place. <laughs> I mean, there's a global ministry center just outside of Cleveland, yes, but, but really it's, it's Baptist Mid-Missions around the world because the sun never sets on Baptist Mid-Missions missionaries that are serving in about 50 different countries. But ministry is directed by the inspired and inerrant word of God. That's one of our core values. And then another one of our core values is the local church is at the heart of God's plan for our ministry. And so I, I, I refer to those as kind of intersecting in this topic in the sense that how do we cultivate or develop a philosophy of missions, how we do missions, uh, that has to come from the Bible. The Bible is what directs us as the inerrant and infallible uh, inspired word of God. But it's also then from the Bible that we are taught about the centrality of the local church. And, and you realize that BMM is, I'll admit it, it it's a parachurch organization. By, by para, we mean we come alongside of churches and try to help churches together, together between other churches do what one church by themselves would have a, a, a very hard time uh, doing. And so we see ourselves as an extension, though, of local churches. So every missionary that serves with Baptist Mid-Missions is sent by a local church. They are commissioned by a local church that, that believes God has called this individual or this couple um, to this kind of ministry, and they are, are launched out of, sent out of. No, no missionary can serve with Baptist Mid-Missions that that's not true of. I've literally met missionaries um, just maybe at conferences or other random places and got to know them, start talking to them, and have said, so what, what's, who's your commissioning church? And I've had them say, well, I don't have a commissioning church. I'm a missionary. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's like an oxymoron <laughs> that you'd be a missionary without a commissioning church. I didn't say it out loud, okay? <laughs> but I thought it, <laughs> bit my tongue a little. And so the local church is, is primary. It's the heart of God's plan for ministry. And that's a matter of both authority. That's also a matter of, of the importance of planting churches. 
Um, starting churches is at the heart of what we do. Some organizations, you know, we'll, we'll start a hospital someplace in Timbuktu. There is a literal Timbuktu, and so I'm not referring to that. But uh, in, in Timbuktu, and, and never, never get around to launching a church as the fruit of that evangelistic ministry of a hospital. And, and, and by my way of thinking and our way of thinking, that's not the biblical model. There ought to be a, a local church. A hospital can be used of God to evangelize. Absolutely. But the fruit of that ought to be local churches because of the centrality of the local church. And I, I probably shouldn't. I can go down that rabbit trail for a long time, okay? <laughs> Pretty passionate about that. That's really important. But I'm tying those two together because of the topic, and that, that topic is missions and, and the local church and that wonderful partnership. And so we exist as, a, as an organization um, to serve local churches like yours and to partner with local churches and be a conduit sometimes between the local church and the missionary. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 13 because here's my overarching um, idea today from these two passages of Scripture, is that I, I think the Lord wants us to, to partner biblically uh, with missionaries to fulfill the Great Commission. So we're going to look at six different principles, and some of them, half of them actually, I think, are found in Acts 13, and then the others are then found in Third John, that little book that oftentimes we, we skip over in the New Testament. So Acts chapter 13, though, is where I want to begin and I want you to notice, we're going to read verse 1 and then verse 5, and we'll come back and look at the other verses in between. But notice what it says there in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me. I'm just going to go ahead and read all, all of those verses, I guess. <laughs> they, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. So this is the first New Testament example of a local church Sending out missionaries. This is the, the classic first missionary journey of, of Saul and Barnabas. Actually, the text flips it the other way around because of the significance of Barnabas at this time. Barnabas and Saul, he would become known as Paul. And so there are a number of principles here that are really vital as we think of this first example in the New Testament of a church sending a missionary. Uh, here are a few of them. Number one especially in relationship to this partnership idea. Missionaries are called to do elsewhere what they have already been doing in their local church. No, notice again what the text says. It says now, verse 1, now in the church that was at Antioch. And so Saul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul, are involved, plugged into local church ministry. And specifically, it says in, in this example, it says they, that there were certain prophets and teachers. And so these are the preachers. These are some of the preachers within the context of the, of the local church. And you see that then being fulfilled in terms of verse 5, because what they go out and do in verse 5, it says, and when they arrived at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue. And so these were the, these were the cream of the crop in the local church. As they served in the church, and as the church fasted and prayed, we'll get to the significance of that here in a little bit, uh, the church realized the call of God on their lives, not just to stay in Antioch and that local church, but that there were other places that had not yet heard the gospel, and so they sent them forth to do that. Let me ask you a question this morning. How well do you think the Antioch church knew Barnabas and Saul? I mean, yeah, think about that. Very well. After all, they were prophets and teachers. So they, they were the guys that were on a regular basis. And I don't know if they had, you know, one of them that was the primary, if there was a rotation or teaching smaller groups versus, you know, what we think of as everybody together, preaching type of context. But, but they were on a regular basis teaching and preaching. And you know, you get to know your, your preacher, your, your teachers, your pastors pretty well uh, on a lot of levels. And one of the levels is by hearing them communicate the word of God. And then interacting with them on other levels as well. And so I think the argument can be made that they knew Barnabas and Saul very well. And so part of what's being taught here is the significance of knowing those that you send and that you support well. Send and support missionaries whom you have seen serving. Send and support missionaries whom you have seen serving. 
And so I want to ask you this morning, and some of what I want to do in, in this morning this morning sessions is interact, okay? I want to ask you this question, and this is in no, in no way designed to be a critique of Faith Baptist Church. I actually prepared this about a month ago, and I've heard some really exciting things in terms of what you're doing uh, to, to communicate with and connect with your missionaries that I wish other churches were doing. So don't take this as a negative, negative reflection at all on, on your church and its relationship with missionaries. But let me just ask this question, okay? If we are to know the missionaries well, and they're to do elsewhere what they've been doing here, um, how does the relationship between Saul and Barnabas compare to the average missionary in the typical, I'm going to put it this way, the typical deputation meeting? I don't know what your typical deputation meeting looks like here. In other words, by deputation meeting, I mean when a missionary comes in and they present their ministry for the first time to you as a church, how much time does a typical Baptist church give to that missionary to present that ministry? I'll, I'll, just, I'll change it that way. How much time does a typical Baptist church do it? I won't ask how you do it, okay? We have a, we have a re retired missionary over here. So what, what's, what was kind of the norm back in the day when you were raising support? Okay, at the most a Sunday. So at the very most, you would get how many times to speak? I mean, other than, than an occasional missionary conference that would launch something. Okay, with the exception of a missionary conference? Um, right. At the most twice, maybe only once. Okay, so, so they would normally speak once, twice, and maybe in an extreme situation three times, uh, or at a missions conference. How does that compare to what we see in the model here? Now, I know this is a sending model, okay? So it's a little bit different than supporting, but, but I, I think the, the argument can be made for we ought to be doing more to get to know our missionaries before we choose to support them. Um, and so the next question I want to ask is, what could, what could churches do to change to get to know a missionary more before they choose as a church to support them? What could churches do? This is where we get to brainstorm a little bit. Yes? I think like kind of what our pastor's doing now is having a, a missionary month. Uh, we have one missionary every month. He's teaching the kids. Excellent. Missionary hour. Um, okay, so some of the things you're doing now, like a missionary of the month type of thing, you're getting to know them better through that, and even some of the children's ministry th types of things. Yes? Okay. Okay. Yeah, corresponding. I'm thinking a little bit more on the side of when you initiate the potential relationship with a missionary. Uh, in other words, what could we do? What could we do to get to know a missionary better before we choose to support them? Okay, an interview. All right, that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, so, so more involved, more personal, more time with them, um, so that you really get to know them. That, that's fantastic. Yeah, over there. Check out their online presence. Okay. Yeah, yeah, social media is a great way to check people out and get to know them a little bit better. Yeah, over here. Okay. Yeah, excellent. And even, even I think one of the things we probably ought to focus on a little bit more is even their sending church in terms of, because that, that's what's going on here in Acts chapter 13, is they were, they were serving in their sending church. And so what does the sending church think about this missionary? Are they excited and enthused? I mean, is, is, there, a, is there a sense of, boy, you ought to support this missionary <laughs> Because, you know, God's going to use them. They, God's used them here already, and now God's going to use them there. That type of thing. So, excellent. Yeah, Paul. At times we would do a Bible school um, during our deputation, mm -hmm. and we were with their kids. It was almost guaranteed support because we were paying attention to the kids. Watching, yeah. Yeah. I know when our kids were young, people would say to me, your, your kids are, are the testimony of your ministry. <laughs> I mean, it's just a reality that as a, as a pastor, people are watching your children and positive or negative, they're a reflection of, of your home and your life and who you really are, uh, those types of things. So Vacation Bible School is another a great opportunity. Missions Conference is another great opportunity. Having them here for maybe more than a Sunday 
uh, maybe more than just one Sunday. Unfortunately, a lot of our missionaries, when they're raising support right now, they don't even get as much as what you described, Pastor Paul. Um, you know, they may, they may just come in and present one time on a Sunday night. And now a lot of churches have ditched Sunday night service. And so they maybe get a combined Sunday school, or maybe they only get one Sunday school class if there are multiple adult Sunday school classes in the church. And so it, it's hard because I, as the president and as a former pastor, feel like, how does a church really get to know a missionary if that's all they get in terms of time spent with them? So being creative, I, I love the idea of even getting to spend time almost like you would interview a pastor, that this is, this is a serious thing, that we're going to partner. Because think about it. Think about it. If you take on a missionary in their late 20s, which is the average age of a new missionary, if you take on a, a missionary in their late 20s, and they serve God for 40 years on the mission field, and you... you <laughs> have that partnership for 40 years. And even just think about it, in, let, let's face it, in dollars and cents for $300 a month for 40 years. That's a big investment. That's a really big investment. Don't you want to know the people well that you're going to invest in? And so missionaries are called to do elsewhere what they've already been doing in their local church. Yes. From my experience, I would say that a missions conference accomplishes a lot of that. It does. Yes. That's one of the outstanding strengths of the missions conference. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I as again, I wished more churches did missions conferences. That also has become something that is not as common as it once was in our Baptist churches, sadly. Yeah, because you really get to know people, especially if they stay in your homes and you get to interact and yes. Excellent. Excellent. And we're going to actually get to that a little bit more on the other side of things, but that's fantastic. Yeah, pastor or other people from the church getting to visit. Second principle is this. Missionaries are the fruit of intentional fasting and prayer. I alluded to this earlier, but notice what happens, and this fits back with what we talked about Sunday morning, Matthew 9, 38, pray the Lord of the harvest to send more labors into the harvest field. And so if you jump back into Acts 13, verse 2, it says, And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, them having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So the, the, the second principle is the, the importance of prayer. And not just prayer, but fasting and prayer. What is fasting? It's the opposite of what we just did, right? <laughs> right? It, it's, it's, and it's not exclusively food, although we think of it that way. You can give up other things. It doesn't have to be food, but... The typical fast is giving up food in order to spend dedicated, and I like to think of it as this way, this way, intentional and intensive. Intentional and intensive time of prayer. You know, it may be you give up a meal to fast. It may be you give up a portion of a day to fast. It may be you give up a day. Um, one of my practices has been sunrise to sunset, where you just, through the sun, sun, sunlight hours, don't eat at all. Um, but fasting and praying and, as Matthew 9, 38 says, begging God for missionaries. Again, I don't, I don't see this as a regular practice. It was a regular, it was a regular practice in the New Testament. It was a regular practice among the Jews to fast on a regular basis. And perhaps if, if we practice that like even the New Testament church practiced it, God may send more missionaries. So missionaries are the fruit of that. They are, they are the result of that. You know, James 4 puts it very clearly uh, very boldly when it says, you have not because you ask not. Perhaps the fact that there are fewer and fewer missionaries headed to the field is because there are fewer and fewer churches that are begging God, fasting and praying. And so missionaries are sent as a result of prayer, but they're also sustained as a result of prayer. You've heard that. Missionaries have told you, you know, I need you to pray for this. And then they've, they've shared examples of ways that people prayed and how God has sustained them. And so let me ask you another question in connection with this. For whom do you pray the most? And the, the Sunday school answer of missionaries is probably not the true one. So, okay. <laughs> I'm thinking more of a principle than, 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 than uh, maybe specifics, okay? For whom do you pray the most? Exactly. That's what, that's what I'm after. So the tendency is, I mean, think about even your prayer time this morning, I hope. The tendency is for us to pray for those that are the nearest and dearest to our hearts. I would guess this morning that most of you prayed for, for some family members because of what's happening in, in their lives. 
or maybe some dear friend here in the church, or hopefully your pastor, and hopefully some missionaries as well. But, but the, the principle, I think, is true. The people that are the closest to, the ones you love the most, are the ones that you're more, the most apt to pray for. And so the, the more intimately you know a missionary, the more likely you are to pray for them. The more likely you are to pray for them personally, the more likely you are to pray for them passionately and, and to pray for them specifically, specifically. And so we got ahead of ourselves a little with a little bit of this in the last point, but what are some ways to get to know your missionaries better that you already support? So my focus primarily on the first one was more of an anticipation of support. And the focus here is what about the missionaries that you already support to get to, to know them better? Yes, Mrs. McLean. Absolutely. And I think that's important, very important. Communication is very, very vital. Absolutely. You, you don't know it. If you don't know it, you can't pray for it, right? I mean, you can pray in general terms, which is okay, but to know specific ways to pray. So it is. it does come back on the missionary a lot in terms of the missionary being willing to, on a regular basis, communicate the needs. All right, what else? For the most part, no, it, it, just because it's so much more efficient. But yes, when a missionary comes through, if you're not already on their email list, get on that email list so that you can know how to pray for them. Somebody mentioned earlier social media. Social media, if they are in a country where that's not going to put them in jeopardy, because of a lot of the creative access nations, they wouldn't be able to be on social media. But if they're in a country where that's okay and they're on social media, a lot of our missionaries have a dedicated Facebook page that is... Uh, the so-and-sos to whatever country, you know, and, and they will put on regular updates. And so if you're on social media, make sure you're following them and, and noticing the prayer requests and things that they'll be mentioning in social media. What else? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, what, what, what we did at, at Elyria, First Baptist Church of Elyria, is that we actually set money aside in our missions budget that was for, well, for me specifically, they wanted me to go on a missions trip to visit our missionaries at least once every two years. Uh, but then there were also opportunities for the church to, to go, and, and we had a few missions trips that way as well. Our teenagers went every single year, but, which is great. That's wonderful, okay? But I, but I often thought, well, why is it the teenagers go every, other, every single year and the adults hardly ever go? <laughs> And so that was something that I think is, is, and your pastor, you know, make sure that you as a church are sending your pastor to go visit the missionaries you support um, and to be able to see the ministry firsthand. It will, it will fire him up. Okay. There's something about a pastor visiting a mission field that will really fire him up for missions, but it will also cultivate a relationship between the pastor and the missionary that the missionary will value greatly and the pastor will too, but it'll be a, a great source of encouragement. Uh, to the missionary. That, and that's part of, you know, even just God's work in my own heart, all the foreign missions trips God gave me the opportunity to take and, and seeing missions firsthand, it, it just, it changes your perspective of life. Um, we are so, <laughs> so American and the world's a big place and it's so different than, than the United States of America. So seeing the missionaries. All right. So missionaries are the, are the fruit. Oh yes. Another one. One fruit of going on mission trips is meeting fellow Christians oh, yeah. in a different culture. Yeah. And you bond right away. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. That connection with fellow believers. You know, one of the richest things is, is praying, going to a prayer meeting and, and hearing two or three different languages being prayed. You don't know what they're saying in those other languages, but you know they're saying the same kind of stuff to God that you are saying. Part of what thrills my soul about the prospect of Revelation 5.9 you know, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation around the throne of Christ in, in heaven is that, is that I've gotten a glimpse of that when being there with, with fellow believers. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. Number three is this. Missionaries are accountable then to the churches that send and support them. So if you finish, if you, if you jump ahead in the text, if you jump ahead to uh, Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14 describes then what happens as a result of this first missionary trip. So Acts 14, beginning in verse 26, it says this, For 
or from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And so Saul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul, end up on that first missionary journey. They complete the first missionary journey. Where do they go? Back to Antioch. This is the church that sent them. And it tells us very specifically what they did in verse 27. They reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, which was amazing and groundbreaking in terms of what God had done in the hearts of Gentiles. And so as churches that that send and, and support missionaries, it is legitimate to expect missionaries to come back and to report um, and, and to expect on that on a... A cyclical basis, what we teach our missionaries at Baptist Mid Missions is that while the ideal is, has been historically uh, every four years to do so, we realize that missionaries are doing it a little more creatively now, and that's okay. Um, and so the whole 20% principle is kind of what we've encouraged our missionaries to do, is that 20% of your time, ought, you ought to think of, of being back and reporting in churches. That would be four years, four years on the field and and then one year back, but some are going to take it every two years and they're going to hit half their churches and, you know, two years and then the other half of the churches or some, some do it other ways. But there ought to be a regular report uh, from missionaries and you ought to expect that. Uh, I would also say, though, then give them adequate time to report. Give them adequate time to be able to share uh, what has been going on in the ministry as well as their heart for the future. Um, I think one of the things I discovered that you're doing here at the church is you're leveraging technology is a great way to do that. Um, I think with the missionary of the month, you're doing some of that in terms of videos and, and things like that. You, you, you can, I mean, I've been at churches where they on a Sunday night, bring a missionary on, on a fairly regular basis on the screen with, with uh, Facebook messenger or FaceTime or zoom, one of those technologies. And there they are, they're actually talking to you back and forth and they may be somewhere halfway around the world. Uh, but they can do that. And so there are a lot of opportunities uh, to use technology. And then the other thing I was going to say was send your pastor, which is, was, already, was already stated, uh, to send your pastor and to send others. What are some other ways that, that you can... And accountability kind of sounds negative. I don't mean for it to be negative, all right? But what are some other ways that, that you can make sure that your missionaries are reporting uh, to you and that you're, you're uh, on a regular basis hearing from them? What are some other creative things maybe? Or did we already cover those <laughs> for the most part? Yeah, Paul? I think it's very important for the church to initiate some of that communication. Good. Rarely did we hear from our churches. Hmm. They expect a letter every so often from right. us. Right, right. Rarely did we hear anything that's going on with them. That's a good point, yeah. So communicate back. And I mean, what, what if a church wrote... Uh, news report type of letter to the missionary to tell them how things are going at the church. From here, they receive that every week. Yeah, yeah, excellent, good. Making it a two-way, a two-way communication. Yeah, and and writing your missionaries is a tremendous blessing, tremendous encouragement uh, to get notes um, from churches to for for people to just even. I try to do this as president as I get the missionary emails from our missionaries, and there are about 450 of them. I try to, on a regular basis, I can't with every single one, at least write a really brief little note saying, I read your, I read your email, thank you so much, I prayed for you, I stopped and prayed for you. Uh, so it's not a long letter, but it's a, I stopped and prayed for you, because I did do that as an encouragement back to them. A couple hands here, we'll start up front. Um, get the children's ministry involved. Our Excellent, ministry yeah. Connect the children's ministries. Good. Very good. We have once a month a ladies' fellowship that takes the letters that have come in or copies of the reports that have come in. We go through them as a group of ladies and we stop and pray for the different areas that have been mentioned on the letter. Good. Specific prayers for them is one way we have done it. Another thing that we do too is um, we try to. Um, if there's a need or something that they've reported, we try to record, uh, work with them to uh, help them supply parts of that need. Now, the Lord lays upon the church hearts to give them 
Yeah. 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 Good. It's amazing too when you start praying for something that God prompts your heart to say, "Hey, maybe we maybe we ought to give toward it. Maybe we ought to help with it." Yeah. Excellent. Okay, one more. Yeah, good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's and that is the beauty of of using Zoom or Messenger or FaceTime is is that it's not costing you like it would if you were on the telephone. Yeah, and you don't you don't always have you don't always have to use the video side of it. You can just use it as a phone. So. All right, we're going to transition into 3 John. So let's go to 3 John, uh, out of Acts chapter 13 and 14. And 3 John is one of those, like I said earlier, I think, um, overlooked books of the Bible. It's one of the shortest books of the Bible. Um, and the focus of the book is it's a, it's a very personal, obviously inspired letter addressed to Gaius from the Apostle John. He's referred to in the text as, as the elder, which would be descriptive of his age as well as his respect. Probably this was written when John was the last living apostle. You know that he lived the longest of all the apostles, was exiled on on the island of Patmos. And so uh, this letter describes that relationship. And what, what he's doing is he actually is commending Gaius for his treatment of traveling evangelists, traveling missionaries, and that the way that they had taken care of of traveling missionaries. And so third John, I'd like to pick up reading then in verse six, actually verse five, verse five, it says this, it says, beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. This is the reference to, to these traveling missionaries that didn't really know at this point, because they're coming through and needed a place to stay. Um, but those traveling missionary strangers, verse six says, it says this, who have borne witness of your love before the church. And so the missionary word got back to John through the church that, that they'd taken such good care of these traveling evangelists, traveling missionaries, who borne witness of your love before the church. If, and if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. So he's both commending them for what they've done, but also encouraging them. This is the way it ought to be done, okay, in terms of caring for uh, missionary, uh, traveling missionaries. Uh, verse 7, because they went forth... For his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. So three principles that I, I'd like to point out here again in this, this topic of missions in the local church and partnership. And the fourth principle is this. Missionaries should be treated in a manner worthy of God. Think about that. That's a pretty strong statement. Notice the way it's made in verse 6. It says, they've borne witness of your love before the church. And then it says, you, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Worthy of God. When you think of the word worthy, um, that you ought to automatically connect that word with worship. Actually, they tell us that our English word worship came from a combination of words where it was actually the word worth-ship. Worth-ship. And so worthiness is a word that's connected with, with, uh, with worship. And so these traveling and missionary evangelists who might have only even stayed for a, a single night as they were out on their, uh, on their assignments and, and spreading the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, he tells them to send them forth as, as people who are, are worthy of God or in a manner that is worthy of God. Um, the case could be made that, that what he's saying is, is treat them as if... Jesus himself was staying at your house. Can you imagine that? If, if Jesus came to stay at your house and you were, he was just there for one overnight and, and, and he was about ready to leave, how would you treat him? How would you treat him? What would you do? Give him the best of everything I have. Yeah, you would give him the best. What else? Try to spend time with him. Would you, would you ask him if he had any needs? 
You would, wouldn't you? And say, well, well, okay, I, I'll, I'll get that for you, right? Those types of ideas. Yes, back here. Make them feel welcome. Yeah. Excellent. Make them feel welcome. Make them feel at home. It's, it's all those things. Uh, to treat God's servants as you would treat the Lord himself. And so when they, when they leave your home, they know they've been loved. They know they've been cared for. They know that they've been taken care of. And that may mean sacrifice on the part of the host and hostess. Because if Jesus was there, would you sacrifice for him? You would. We would, wouldn't we? And so it may mean sacrifice. And so I, I think what this text is teaching is, is a really important principle, and that is this, that how well a church treats its missionaries, and by the way, your pastor's your first missionary, okay? So how well, how well a church treats its missionaries, its servants, its pastors is a reflection of that church's view of God. Worthy of God. Treat them in a manner that is worthy of God. So it's a reflection of your view of God, how you treat God's servants. Thankfully, I think the days are, have passed us by of people sending missionaries used tea bags. I, I've heard stories of once upon a time. I can't fathom that, that he would send a used tea bag to a missionary. Or Most churches have, have updated their missions closets, where once upon a time it looked more like you were going to Goodwill. And the clothes that people, nobody wanted was put in the missionary closet. And I think most churches have, again, seen the need to, to not do that kind of stuff. But, but rather than supply God's servants with leftovers, we ought to give them the very best as an expression of our worship, our worship of the Lord, uh, treating them well. What are some other things you can do? What are some other things that a, mission, that, that a, that a church can do to make sure their missionaries' needs are supplied. Not necessarily just when they're here, okay? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, another thing our church did I thought was pretty neat in Virginia. Um, at the missions conferences, it was before the missionaries came that were going to come, they sent out a questionnaire, what are your greatest needs? And at the end of the missions conference at the international dinner, we would bring gifts to them of things they asked for. And Excellent. Some of the bigger things that we could, we'd all you know, go in together and get it. Excellent. Yeah, so you did kind of a Christmas, a Christmas expression of love for their missionaries. Yeah. I know one church in Michigan that, that does that. Any missionaries that are furloughing are encouraged to be there for this one specific Sunday. And it's, it's like spoil the missionaries and their kids at Christmas time. And they ask them ahead of time what their needs are. And so they invite all of their furloughing missionaries to be there at that time to do this Christmas thing. I love the gift bag, the bag idea. That's a phenomenal way to... To minister uh, to them as well. What else? What are some other things that a church can do to, to demonstrate their love and care for their missionaries in a manner worthy of God? Also, some, some missionaries, they, they have health issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should really you know, pay attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. All that costs money. Right. True. Right. Good. And that kind of connects with one of the things that popped into my mind is that is on a regular basis checking to see if your missionaries are fully supported and evaluating whether or not you as a church feel like are we supporting them for enough if they are not if they're not fully supported? Should we be doing more for them to help try to get them? Because a lot of missionaries live at that 85, 90, 95%, only a, a few. There's, for us at Baptist Missions, they're supposed to be back to 100% before they go back to the field. But oftentimes with currency issues and churches dropping them, you know, when they're there for four years, they may go from 100% to 80%. And so staying in touch with missionaries about their support needs is significant as well. I think I saw another, another hand. Yes. Additional monetary support at Christmas time. Yes, the Christmas gifts are always a huge blessing, a huge blessing to them, indeed. I would also mention projects. Stay, stay in touch with what your missionaries' projects are in terms of if they're building a building, you know, for the church to maybe receive a special love offering because they're building a church building and being a part of that. Um, another thing would be just 
just ministering to the needs of the children, the MKs. Uh, that is one of the most challenging things in the world to, to live in a, in a different culture and to feel like, you know, you're, you're kind of a part of the culture you're living in, but you're still kind of an American and, and being an MK is a, is a real challenge. It's a, it's a difficult life. And so to be a blessing to them, I, and then I would add to that, especially when the kids come back to the States, uh, to go to college, uh, if a church would just say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to make sure that our MKs get care packages. Um, I don't know if, if this happened to you, but when I was at college, I, I loved it when I'd get a box from home and it would have, you know, mom's homemade cookies in it and, and some different things from home. And what a blessing that was. I mean, food service at college is okay, <laughs> but after a while it gets a little old. And so even care packages for the MKs that are in college is a tremendous source of encouragement to the MKs. It says to the MKs, that church doesn't just love my mom and dad. They love me. Which, which communicates a lot. Any other ideas? Yeah, Ruth. Even helping a college student that comes, you know, they're coming from another country. They have nothing when they get here. They, you know, maybe they came from a warm weather climate and they're going to school in Iowa. They have no winter clothes, no coat, no boots, um, no car, yeah. any of those kind of things. And it's, it's expensive to get a kid into college and, yeah. and clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Our fourth is about to graduate from college, so that's the first-hand experience of a mama. And we're in Ohio, and our son's in, in Iowa. Actually, three out of four of our kids went to Iowa to school, and so they were a long ways away. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up, having, Ruth having spoken, I'm going to back up to another just idea that her mom does. Actually, her parents did it first, but, but now her mom does this. Um, her, mom, her, her mom lives, her dad's with the Lord. He died of cancer about five years ago. Um, but she has a separate living space um, for, for missionaries to stay in if they need it. And she's strategically located just a few miles from the Mayo Clinic. And so what happens, this isn't exclusively for missionaries, but, but she opens her home to people that are going to see some specialist at the Mayo Clinic for free so they don't have the expense of 150 bucks a night in a hotel on top of the medical bills. And that's been a tremendous uh, encouragement and help to missionaries, to pastors, and just to other other people in local churches. So if you can provide that, I think one of the, the beauties of what she's done there is it gives them still their own living space. You know, in other words, they don't feel like they're invading somebody else's home, but it, so it's kind of ideal that they're separate. It's almost like a mother-in-law suite in the basement that's finished that provides for that. It doesn't have to be that, that okay? But there is, there is a certain level of that's ideal um, to that. And so her mom does that. Yes? I was thinking in regards to the kids that are going Excellent. What about keeping them for the holidays? Yeah, good. Providing an invitation for them to have a place to spend over the holidays. Yeah, excellent idea. Because that is a dilemma. Where am I supposed to go? <laughs> you know, I don't have family here in some cases. Paul, did you have another thought too? Or? Well, I'm about to go through our mind, but I, I sometimes it would something not to do. Good. It's totally different. Right, right. Yeah, good. One thing not to say to missionaries, I understand completely. <laughs> I know just what it's like. <laughs> All right, good. Uh, let's move on. Number five. We're starting to run low on time here. About 10 minutes left. Missionaries should be supported as rightly motivated servants of God. Verse 7 and 8 of 3 John puts it this way. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such, actually some translations say we ought to support such, that we may become fellow workers for the truth. And so, you know, missionaries, missionaries serve for his namesake. If you were to take that phrase, the sake of God's name, I, th I think it is a, an equivalent phrase to the phrase you find all over in the Bible of, of doing things for the glory of God. The concept of, of God's glory and his, and his name are, are closely uh, tied to one another in that God does what he does for his glory and God does what he does for his name's sake. And so his name represents his character. His name represents his reputation. And there are all kinds of examples. Why did God rescue Israel from Egypt? According to Psalm 106 verse 8, for his name's sake. 
why does God save us, according to Romans 5, or Romans 1, verse 5, for his namesake? Uh, what was Jesus' prayer? Hallowed be thy name, Matthew 6, 9. And so God does everything for the sake of his name, and he does everything for the sake of his glory. Those are two probably synonymous concepts. And so why does a missionary serve? You know, a missionary serves to reach people for Christ, to spread the gospel. A missionary serves because they, they want to see a church established. They want to see the spread of the gospel. But ultimately, a missionary serves for the sake of his name, for the fame of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is their motivation. That is the right motivation for a missionary. And yet it goes on to say this. It says that there, there's a financial ramification to that of all things. Um, verse 7 says, because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. And so the, the financial ramification is this, that true servants of God aren't in it for the money. Uh, godly missionaries are not in it for the money. Um, but it's also on the flip side, it's the responsibility of God's children's children to support God's servants. It's the responsibility of God's children to, to support God's servants. It says very specifically, taking nothing from the Gentiles. I think Gentile is used in a generic sense there to, to demonstrate or to represent unbelievers. And so their, their support wasn't coming from unbelievers. Their support was coming from the children of God. And as I said earlier, verse 8 says, receive such. Some translations use the phrase support such. And so support is financial in nature, but it's so much more. Um, it's so much more than that in terms of prayer, in terms of, of care, in terms of encouragement. And I think we've already mentioned a lot of the ways that we can support missionaries uh, in ways that are more than financial. Financial is, is important, but you've given great examples of other ways that we can support missionaries. And then the sixth principle is that missionaries should then also be viewed as equal partners in gospel ministry. Equal partners in gospel ministry. And the, ver the verse there is verse 8. I think it's left off the PowerPoint. Verse 8, though, this is, then says this. We therefore ought to receive such that, that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Um, the idea of fellow workers is that word synergy. I mentioned this in Sunday school. Um, on Sunday, the, the, the Greek term is soon ergoi. It means workers with, with workers, literally. And so it speaks of people that are working together. Um, and, it, and it communicates that idea of synergies, synergy. And there, there are a few principles that I think are really vital from, that are taught from this verse. Number one is this. Missionaries don't do gospel work for you. They do it with you. They don't do gospel work for you. They do it with you. Sometimes Christians and even churches can have the mindset of the missionary is kind of the hired hand. You know, we support a missionary so they can go do evangelism. And that's a whole lot easier than me doing evangelism, so let's support a missionary. No, they are fellow laborers, fellow workers, as it says there in verse 8, for the truth. And so don't allow yourself to have the mindset of, well, I'll give and I'll pray so I don't have to go, or so I don't have to witness. Somebody else, I'll pay somebody else to do the job for me. Missionaries don't do gospel work for you, they do it with you. Secondly, the senders are just as important as the sent. This is so, so vital it says that we become fellow workers for the truth. There's no pecking order here of, okay, they're the really important fellow workers and we're the secondary fellow workers. You know, we're not as important. The, the supporters are not as important as the sent. The reality of the matter is this, that, that there are no second-class Christians, that those who stay behind because that's the call of God in their life are not second-class to those who go because that's the call of God in their life. Both are following the call of God and the, and the will of God, and both are vitally essential. Uh, a number of years ago, um, the, the army ran an ad called An Army of One. And that was one of the dumbest ads <laughs> that they've ever run. And they were trying to, I think, appeal to the individualistic ego of the average American 18-year-old. You know, that you're going to be an army of one, and you're just going to be amazing, and we need people like you that are... <laughs> full of themselves probably to fight in this army of one well the reality of the matter is there's no such thing as an army of one well if there is it loses every time Be because you can't you can't fight battles you can't win wars with an army of one and military strategists tell us that for every one soldier out there on the front line for every one soldier out there on the front line there's something between 10 and 15 people supporting them 
making it possible for the person on the front line to be successful. Think about logistics, transportation, communications, training, supplies, and so on and so forth. And so which is more important, the guy that's pulling the trigger on the front line or the guy that makes it possible for that to happen? The answer is exactly. The answer is both. Because if you don't have every one of those people, the war fails. The battles fail. And so you need both of them. It's not a matter of one being more important than the other. I mean, we, we've kind of had a firsthand experience with that the last two years in the United States, even when it comes to this idea of supply chain. I mean, was that a regular part of your vernacular two and a half years ago? I've been thinking every day about the supply chain. No. I mean, probably we had heard the term before, but since there are now supply chain issues and you can't get a, a new car because of no chips, or you can't get whatever it was that you, was your favorite this at the grocery store, or your favorite that somewhere else, we all know about supply chain. Supply chain's essential, right? And that's true of the military. Well, guess what you are in this church? You're the supply chain. That's right, you're the supply chain for your missionaries. And so you are just as important as the senders as those that are sent. Don't ever minimize the role that you have in the local church to, to, to give and to pray and to love and support the people that God has called to go. It's so important for us to understand. And then the third one is that combined efforts produce multiply, multiplied results. This, again, I alluded to in Sunday school. That's the concept of synergy. When you are co-laborers or fellow workers, as is stated there in verse 8, the result is multiplied. It's the, it's the old 1 plus 1 doesn't equal 2. 1 plus 1 equals 4 or 5 is a result of the combined efforts. Through the synergy of both the senders and the sent, great commission work is done and far more is accomplished for eternity. Maybe I can just put it this way. Missionaries need you. Your missionaries need you. And when you do your part and they do their part, God does great things. And I trust you can even think right now of, of examples over the last decade of the great things that God has done on the mission field through the missionaries that you support and that you pray for. And God has done some great things through them as a result of their efforts, yes, but equally as a result of your efforts, your love, your support, your prayer for them. So what are some ramifications? I want to just, and maybe the word implication would be better than ramification, but here's some kind of conclusions I think we can draw from some, from some of the things we've learned this morning. Number one is uh, this, that supporting, if necessary, fewer missionaries that you know well seems to be closer to the New Testament model rather than supporting many that you don't know well. I mean, think about the relationship between Saul and Barnabas and the Antioch church in terms of how well they knew them and, and vice versa. And in a lot of ways, that's a, that's a more ideal than having a lot of missionaries. Once upon a time, the average Baptist church, and I used to refer to it as a brag board, <laughs> the missionary brag board was the bigger the board, the more, more spiritual you were as a church. And so if you had 100 missionaries and supported them $10 a month, you were obviously a more missionary-minded church than the, than, the mission, than the church that had 10 missionaries they supported for 100 a month or whatever the dollar amount might have been. I don't think that that really fits well, the scriptural model of knowing. Knowing your missionary, knowing their needs, caring for them, loving them, praying for them. And so whatever the capacity of the average church is, I don't know. I don't know. There's no magic number, okay? There's no magic number. Um, but supporting fewer missionaries that you know well seems to be closer to the New Testament model. Secondly, knowing them well would require them giving them more time and ministry opportunities in the church. We talked about that. You know, the, the, the old model of they come in and they have 30 minutes to speak in one service is probably inadequate if you really want to know your missionaries well that you are considering for support. It's also inadequate probably when they report back to the church. Uh, thirdly, if more churches then adopted this model, missionaries could be supported by fewer churches that know them intimately and love them deeply rather than lots and lots of churches that don't know them very well. And I think one of the end results of that then would be this. Doing this would result in healthier furloughs for your missionaries. I mean, think about this. If a missionary has 50 churches to report to in a year's time, while they're back on furlough, that means they have to be in a church every single Sunday but two, which isn't feasible, uh, because they're not going to be able to even coordinate that in a year's time. And so better for them to have 25 churches 
so that they can get to those churches, spend a little more time with those churches, and also take some time to slow down, catch a breather, because life on the mission field is very, very intense. And so I think this is a better model, and I think even better reflects the intimacy of, of the relationship between missionaries and their, their churches in the New Testament. It's 1030, but if it's okay with the pastor, I'd like to give you opportunity for questions. Okay, and even pastor, if you want to join us and ask questions too, you're welcome to do so too. Because I know that, especially those ramifications, that may not, you know, that may be new to some. And there are maybe some questions you have about that, but uh, questions that you have. You've given great input today. I really appreciate it. Yes, sir. How many missionaries are under the banner of BMS? If we count those who have been commissioned by a local church and are not retired, there are about 450 current missionaries that are either short-term or career. We have a lot of smaller groups that go, you know, maybe for a few weeks or even a month or two. And, and then we have also a large pool of retired missionaries, but 450 that are either short-term or career missionaries. Yeah. Yes, sir. Is there anything that surprised you or maybe caught you by surprise moving from a pastor of a mission-minded church to now president of an agency? Um, caught me by surprise. Or, or something that you learned that, hey, I didn't realize this now that I'm at this desk. Yeah. I don't know if it's missions related, though, but the, one of the things that's been a source of discouragement to to me is how many churches are really struggling as i get out and preach in churches um there are just a lot of churches that are just yeah it's like the glory days have passed them by back in the day they have all these wonderful and i look out in, into a third full fourth full auditoriums that's not necessarily missions but that is a reflection of what's happening in the church in america today that is a, that is of concern you know, and that's part of why my prayer as I go to different churches is, is the prayer of William Haas to awaken the churches of North America. Because if, if, a, if churches are shriveling up and dying, that means they're not evangelizing. And so my heart is that hopefully God would use me to stir believers anew and afresh to, to evangelize. Because the, the health of the North American church is vital to the spread of the gospel worldwide. Because if we don't have healthy churches, unhealthy churches don't send missionaries. Unhealthy churches don't support missionaries. And so that's part of my burden is that God would, would bring a revival to our North American churches and the, and the fruit of that would then be sending out missionaries around the world. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, go back to Acts 13, 4. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. It, right. It was the work of the Spirit of God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible was uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Starts, mm. Where Paul prays for the strengthening power of the Holy Spirit in the inner man. Amen. Amen. I'm reminded on a regular basis, as, as Jesus put it, without, without me you can do nothing. And so no matter how hard we try and how much we work, it, it, it is the result of the work of the Spirit of God in the hearts of people. And that's what we pray for, the work of the Spirit of God. Thank you. Good reminder. Yes, ma'am. It, it's right. It's hard for me to discern which came first, the chicken or the egg. There, um, in terms of my tendency would be to say would would be to say this that the lack of pastors and missionaries is the result of of unhealthy churches. Not unhealthy churches are the result of lack of pastors and missionaries, because because ultimately. Pastors and missionaries come out of healthy churches, and then that multiplies. And so I, I, think, it, I think it's the, the lack of healthy churches 
um, that has caused then the shortage of, and then that, and then that has a snowball effect because what you were alluding to is then that makes it even worse. You know, when, when there are pastoralist churches, um, and when there are fewer missionaries reaching the lost around the world, it's, it's really a, it's really a combination of the two. It's of grave concern. If you haven't read that book, I mentioned it on Sunday, especially the pastoral staff, The Vanishing Ministry in the 21st Century by Woodrow Kroll. That's a, that's a uh, uh, I don't know, it's almost, oh, it's almost prophetic. He, he, he made no, <laughs> no attempt to say, I'm, I'm, I'm predicting the future. But uh, it did kind of, he wrote it originally in the 90s. It was originally called The Vanishing Ministry. Uh, and then in the early 2000s, updated it. I realize it's 20 years old now. The update's 20 years old. But, but uh, he told us it was coming, and he was right. So, what else? Any other questions? Okay. Well, thank you for being here. Just, just by being here, you say to me that you love missionaries, you care about missionaries, and you want, want to do everything you can to pray for and to support and to love missionaries, which that's, a, that's really, really vital. And uh, I've really enjoyed our time together. We'll look forward to tomorrow night as well. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's right. Let's go out and do it, right? That's right. Good. Yeah, words are cheap. Actions mean everything. All right, Pastor Caleb.